to end if love remains a unique show spotlighting people ideas science culture and art your host mike lovett, mike lovett. hi thank you rachel for that wonderful introduction um this is mike lovett and you are listening to and if love remains i'm here with my co-host dr elias axel Pedersen. welcome elias Hey Mike, great to be back. It's going to be a fun time. It is going to be a great time, and I'm I'm very excited to talk with our guest today, um, Dr. Frank Huang. Um, he is a, a friend of yours. Um, he's professor at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Um, he is a, a quite in-demand teacher. He's a stellar pianist with a vast repertoire. And currently he's in the process of recording the entire output, which is an unbelievable thing, of the Russian composer Nikolai Metner. Um, uh, Metner sorry. Um, and it's wonderful to have you on. Frank, thanks for, for joining us here with And If Love Remains. Thanks so much for having me, Mike, Elias. It's, uh, it's truly a pleasure, and I look forward to our, our chat today. Yeah, me, me too. Um, mm-hmm. Just real quick, give, give some, I gave you a, a quick, you know, the quick introduction, but, but tell us a little bit about yourself, um, you know, how um, music became part of your life, how you became a, a pianist, and, you know, maybe the short version, because I know all of ours are <laughs> long versions. <laughs> your but, origin but, story. Yeah, what's your, what's your origin story <clears throat> for us? <laughs> My origins. Yeah, right. um, so, you know. <laughs> super pianist. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I don't have like, you know, like, a, a very exciting story about how I came to piano, other than the fact that, um, you know, I, I did not grow up in a family of uh, musicians. My, my, I mean, my mom did take piano um, casually a, as a hobby um, when she was pregnant right. with me. So I think she always likes to claim that credit as to, <laughs> you know, why, why I became a pianist. But, but, but in all seriousness, you know, she, she, you know, encouraged me at a young age. And then, uh, and then I just, I just fell in love with it, and uh, and it wasn't ever like a a battle or a struggle to to get me to practice because just I always enjoyed it, and and you know one thing led to another, and I it just always it just always felt like a calling uh, in terms of being a professional musician, being a pianist. I I you know growing up in high going up in high school, I. I, I had other options in terms of other fields of study, but I, I, nothing really gravitated me more towards music and piano. And, and I was just it, it, always surrounded by, um, I went to a pre-college program and I was always surrounded by um, other students that were just really, really passionate about music and, mm. and cultivating their craft. And so it was just what I knew and what I, um, what it, I was just kind of, uh, just destined a, to be a so natural be. progression. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It, it wasn't ever a chore for you. You just loved it. And I know actually, because I've known Frank for a long time, I know how much you used to practice <laughs> a yes. lot of hours. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, uh, it's, I, I never saw it as, uh, oh my gosh, this is, this is like, this is, uh, I never saw it as a sacrifice, if you will, you know, mm-hmm. I never, I, I, uh, I just saw it as, um, 
you know, well, yes, it's a, ne a necessary re requisite and requirement to, to, to being a professional, but it just, it didn't seem like work, you know, and, mm -hmm. it, and that's the best feeling to, to have. So, yeah. And yeah. I, I've, I've, I've known Elias for gosh, years, <laughs> yeah, so. many years. It's great. <laughs> yeah. So I, I have a kind of a, um, I mean, this sounds like probably a dumb question, but, but, you know, I'm good at those. Um, <laughs> I have a, um, uh, you know, growing up, um, I know for myself, um, you know, I grew up, uh, loving music. I, I was, I was, uh, trained kind of in the, in the, uh, classical realm. Um, but I really kind of my, myself, I, I loving like rock bands like Rush and Dream Theater and, and some of these bands that kind of like inspired me. And then, it, and then the, the classical aspect kind of brought, brought kind of came back to me. Um, you know, I got, I got far into jazz and fusion and a bunch of stuff like that. And still am like, I love that music. Mm -hmm. I, I'm very eclectic in my taste. Um, but, mm -hmm. but it's kind of that it's brought me kind of full circle to, um, you know, the, the, um, the classics. And I'm curious about, about that with you, like you're, um, um, you know, obviously you, um, have, have been drawn sp specifically to, to, uh, Metner, but, but to the, the kind of the classical world, um, for you, did, did you kind of find a journey through different genres of music? Um, you know, what, what drew you to, to being a, a, you know, classic performer playing, you know, the, the greats of the last 400 years? Yeah. Um, my, yeah, as, as you mentioned, my, my world, um, is and has and also was revolved around um, classical music. Um, although I did, you know, appreciate other um, genres and forms. I um, one of my really good friends is is a jazz saxophonist, so he talks about his role all the time, and I just love getting immersed into that world. Um, um, in, in college, I, um, I actually really appreciated a Radiohead because it has that kind of mm -hmm. you know, rock and, and, and class. And I believe they were even classically trained too as well. And so I, I do enjoy those fusions. And um, um, But yeah, no, I, I would say I'm primarily in the, um, in the classical world. And I just, I grew up to, um, and I've talked about this with you, Elias, a lot about just... Uh, just growing up with all those historical legendary recordings, um, yeah. the, the greats, right? The greats, um, Horowitz, Glenn Gould, Richter, um, all of these. And, uh, and I just, uh, it just inspired me. And uh, I, I just, uh, I remember just in the car and at home, just burning out the, the CD and the CD yeah. player, just like, just constantly. And no, I can relate and, to that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it, it just brings back a lot of great memories, but, um, yeah, anyways, to answer your question. Yeah. I, I just really, um, was focused more towards classical. Um, but I, I, I do appreciate other, other genres, of course. Yeah. We were all so influenced that, <clears throat> that really golden age of recording the great pianists and, uh, we've had Mark Ainley on here a couple times. I'm, I'm sure you're aware of him or, or know him. Right. And we've talked about some of those great recordings that inspired me, that inspired you, Mike, and, and all of us. And so it's, uh, it's a yeah. rich world to grow up in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, 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 it is what's wonderful. And, and you and I, Franco, were talking a little bit, <laughs> talking before the podcast about diversity. And <laughs> But it, it's wonderful to listen to those recordings and hear, you know, the – different people's interpretations of the same piece and, and how, and how a great composition can bring out so many different 
and interesting, um, you know, flavors, takes, um, mm -hmm. you know, inspirations that, that can kind of touch different people in different ways. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. And then, you know, with, with all the access to you know, just with all these different recordings, you know, there's like a million recordings of, <laughs> of whatever, you know, but, uh, it's always interesting to, to, um, to see what's out there. And, you know, I, I always tell my students, uh, because they always get, it's, it's very easy to fall into the habit of, okay, so I'm going to learn this Beethoven sonata. Right. And then, so I'm going to go listen to so-and-so on YouTube and which, which is great because you have that kind of access and capability. Right. But, uh, but I always like try to tell them, Hey, I, I want you to sort your stuff out first, right. Sort out your creative thought of like, exploring and, and learning the piece yourself and making your own discoveries. And of course I will help you too, but I want you to do that first before, before you become too, um, influenced like attached, by yeah. exactly because, yeah, it's like because it's not just the only way. And, uh, and it's, and, uh, and to me, you're like, you're kind of like doing yourself a disservice. It's like, that's like the most creative part. Why would you deprive yourself? Of that process that creative process so um anyways it just it just reminded me of that when you were mentioning think, that mike yeah i think actually on that issue we've, we've talked about sort of <clears throat> also with with daniel shapiro of course you know him oh, very okay. well yeah and uh, about you know when yeah when it is best to listen to a recording you know with his students for example and uh when not to and when to work on your own and and certainly for those of us you know that have played and heard a lot of repertoire Sometimes it's hard to to uh, start a new piece with fresh ears without having heard all the things uh, yeah. from our past. And so, you know, I, I don't know if that's maybe we can talk a little bit about your teaching before we get into Metner. What are some of the the precepts you use, or you know, all these guru advice uh, nuggets that you can can give us? But no, seriously, if uh, what are what are some of the things you do to work with your students? at the university level, because I, I know you've taught at the university level for many years and um, maybe other other levels if uh, if you currently teach them. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's such a great question because I, I, I think that is a challenge, right? Especially if we're playing repertory that that has been played so much, right? With and with tons of recordings out there, maybe we've heard a few live performances. So we already, so we already have an expectation of what's going to happen, and I and I and that's kind of the um, the kind of the um, the premise that I try to tell students is that you know at one at some point in history this piece was brand new, right? It was completely new. And so even though you've heard it a hundred times and maybe you've performed it a hundred times, but it needs to each performance, each time you bring it back, or even if you're playing it for the first time, but it's still a very popular piece. It needs to be like, it is the world premiere of it. And that's really, really hard because, and that kind of goes back to what I was saying about not listening to recordings early, um, uh, because like then you, you get, um, you get you you get influenced, and uh, so I, I tell students to, um, like I said, after they work out all their stuff, work out, you know, like really ex examining, exploring, like um, the details, you know, the beyond beyond the notes, right? Beyond um, 
even after you memorize, you you look back at it, maybe at a different microscopic um, view, right? And maybe different angle. And uh, so uh, I, and, and then after that, and then after we explored a lot of our options out, then we can see, okay, what are, what are um, other people? What are other pianists? What are other recordings? What are, what are they doing? Right. And yeah. what, um, and, and, and it doesn't mean to copy because to me, I feel like it, like, Original art is of course, is the best. We want original yeah, yeah. art. We don't want we don't want we don't want copied art. We don't want replicas. And uh, and uh, so uh, yeah. And then we can see what what works and what doesn't work. And so and to me, I find that this and just from my experience that this process uh, um, really engages students. Um, it creates the creative juices going. Um, and I and of course I tailor it. Depending on you know the student, whether you know, they're a grad student or a freshman, or sure, yeah. I have some talented pre-college students, and oh, okay. and it, to me, I, I I still do this process for everyone. I, I just kind of adjust it and tailor it depending on yeah um, their to their level, their taste, yeah, their experience. Exactly. Sure, sure, yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's a very it's a it's a very it's it's a very tricky thing. I I, I find, and especially a piece that that you have worked on many, many times. That, that's mm -hmm. always difficult. I, I've yeah, I think we all have that issues, right? <laughs> yeah. That is very hard. Yeah. Yeah. I love it's, that. That's good. Yeah. You know, how do you, how do you make it the world premiere? Cause it, cause the truth is it's the world premiere for somebody. Yeah, it is. Exactly. Yeah. yeah it, it is a world premiere for someone. So, uh, I often say it's like, you know, like meaning behind like this particular marking by Beethoven or this, or like what, like why could he have done, why did he choose this particular option when he had this one readily available? And then this goes with like, you know, your familiarity with what Beethoven tends to do, like his compositional voice. And it's just like studying any good poetry literature, right? You, we examine the meaning beyond the, the words and we and and and, then, and so that's how we get to know that particular artist composer author novelist whatever um better. yeah no knowing what their assumptions might be in their time and then setting up for you know some sort of arrival and do they do they meet the expectation do they break the expectation what avenue did they choose and why and you know could they have gone another way would another composer have gone that way a lot of interesting questions that you can really go down a rabbit hole and we've in some previous podcasts we've gone down some rabbit holes with that and mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty pretty well, fascinating the, how the deeper far you question i think the deeper question then turns into like do i want to subvert that expectation or do i want uh -huh. to enhance it like what do i want to do um as a performer mm -hmm. um, because then i have the choice of 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 the, you're expecting this you've heard it this way you've uh you, this, these are the markings that have been there how can i subtly change it to to make it my own and 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 have my own voice become um you know uh say what 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 only i can say i, I think that's the, that's the idea of the artist is that you're trying to say something in a way that only you can say that's true well, you, you nailed it right on the head. I, that's kind of a little bit of my philosophy. Is like I, I, I don't like my, I don't want my all my students to sound like me or like each other or whatever. You know, I, 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 I um, this kind of, I don't know how you, you could call it analytical 
<laughs> lessons or whatever. They, uh-huh. they, I, I, I want them to have ownership of mm-hmm. their performance of, you know, they'll be like, it's my piece, right? The students always right. say it's my piece, right? And I don't want them to feel like, well, okay, I, I'm just kind of doing what my teacher prescribed to hear. And, and sure, there are some things that are prescriptive, of course, mm-hmm. but, uh, mm-hmm. but I think there's, um, there's elements of performance where, like, you can, you can say what, you can explain to the student what, what the composer is doing here. And, and maybe, what's impactful and significant but at the end of the day the student f- has a reaction they feel what they feel towards what the composer is doing here and they might have a different take and and, and i say as long as as long as you're convincing i i you know i maybe i might not agree with your musical decision but i i can't say you're wrong and mm-hmm. and, and and so i i just kind of like to have students take like like you said might just have ownership of their interpretation and their performance and 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 i it just i, I just think it makes it fun for everyone yeah, <laughs> so yeah, they, sure. yeah well, they, they want to like, practice more <laughs> you start you start to feel like almost a collaborator with the composer who's been you know a dead for 100 or 200 years and that's kind of an exciting aspect to, to think about yeah it, yeah exactly and, and 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 we just kind of discover things together and and sometimes i you know, I, I learn from students. I, I, I just, I, I'll be like, oh, I didn't, I really didn't see it that <laughs> way. And then, <laughs> and those are the best because those are the best learning moments and teaching moments for everyone, right? For the student and for me. And, um, and it's, it, I, I, I just love, I, I just love teaching in that kind of way where it's just almost kind of a Socratic method where we just kind of go back and forth and talk. And sometimes questions are met with more questions and, and that's okay. And I think that's fine. I, I think that's a great thing. And it takes a lot of time. You know, we only have one hour in our lessons and sometimes right. you get carried away with, with an opening phrase. And I'm just like, Oh crap. The hour is yeah. over. Yeah. It's, it's in, incredible. I think for people that maybe don't teach or don't know what goes into um, in any field, but certainly in music, like how you can delve into things, uh, and, and the amount of energy it takes to have that give and take, not just a, uh, a teacher telling you, okay, you do this, do this, do this, and listen to me, everything, but that give and take and both growing at the same time, it takes an immense amount of energy, but I think it's very rewarding. And the fact that you are so open to your, your students' ideas and learning from them and having each of them present their own sort of personal touch on things, uh, that says a lot. To, uh, about you as a teacher, but I don't think people realize just how much effort and time and energy it might take to uh, to cater things to the individual student. It's it's so much easier to just put them through a you know an assembly line method. Like okay, this is everybody's doing this piece. We're all going to play it like this, and um, and you know there are enough people out there that do that. But I I've seen you you teach. I've seen a lot of I've heard many of your students, and you know every one of them has something special something different and and i think that speaks very highly to you so um keep up what you're doing <laughs> thanks I, I i really appreciate that yeah the, those kind words it's it is it is time consuming it is it is tricky but uh i i, I just find it absolutely rewarding and and you get to see how students they the, you know they, they they often don't realize how much create creative um potential that they have, and I think it's my job. I, I don't see my job as a prof- like my 
my role as a teacher is to just merely provide information. I mean, I, I do, I have to, of sure. course, but, but I see myself as helping them realize their and maximizing their creative potential because they're like always like, Oh my gosh, I didn't, I didn't think I could do that. Or I didn't, I didn't think yeah. my ears were that good. And I'm like, your ears are fine. You just need to exercise <laughs> yeah. your ears, you know? <laughs> your hearing's fine. Your listening needs to improve. <laughs> yeah, you just need to use your ears. It's, it's, yeah. it's you know, you just got to use it. And, and yeah. this is what you need to use. You need this is how you use it. This is how you work towards developing. How you train, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. So, mm-hmm. uh, and that's gratifying to me to uh-huh. see students like through through my time with them and, 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 and see them just kind of blossom like that. And I'm just like... Wow, and by the senior year, I'm just like, who are you? <laughs> what happened right. to you? And well, it's it's a great feeling. And that and that that is a sign of a, of a great mentor. And I have always used that term mentor, with yeah. with my students. I, is I'm tr- I'm not trying to teach you. I have to teach you because that's part of the job. But I really feel myself as more of a mentor. You know, I'm I'm mentoring <clears throat> you towards your goals. That it's not my you're not trying to be, it's not my vision that matters. It's, it's your vision. It's not even your parents' vision. If you're still under their roof, it's, it's really your vision. You've got to start to learn what that vision is. And, and, you know, whether it's in music or out of music, like that, that practice yep. will help you in life, no matter what is, is learning, what is your vision and helping yourself to accomplish that. I completely agree. I, I completely agree. And, you know, uh, and that, 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 of course, in, in terms of the intensity of how, how much you're going to push that, of course, varies on the student and the age level and, and sure. everything. But yeah, I, I'm now speaking primarily about my college kids. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they all have, you know, what's fascinating is they all come in with, with you know, um, with different uh, career plans and paths and what they want to do. And it changes over the course of the four years. And that's that's really normal. And I, I always just wonder, I'm like, I always wonder how they, you know, which, which path, what's their story going to be after they, you know, once they come in and then once they leave and it, it's, it keeps me on my toes. I have to say it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's, I, I like to be challenged in that, in that sense. What, um, you know, I, quick again, kind of maybe a, a different question as far as um, as you're seeing seeing more students come in, and, and this is a two part question for me. What what number one? What do you admire about this like incoming generation? What's maybe some traits that you see about them that that you really admire? And and number two, what are what's one thing that that you wish that they had or, or did differently or or a skill or you know what 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 trends do you do you see? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, it, I was just talking about this with a colleague the other day and how uh, it feels like every year or every couple years, we, we, I really feel the difference in, in generation between students. And I, I think that now these days, since ed, the cost of higher education is astronomically expensive, Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it doesn't seem to be, um, it, it seems to keep going up and up and up. I, I just kind of looked at our tuition the other day and then I was kind of thinking back when I was a student and how, how much cheaper it was then. I was just like, goodness mm-hmm. gracious, right? And we thought it was, but, a, and it was a lot then too. Yes. And at that time I was like, gosh, this is so expensive. And now it's mm-hmm. even more. And I think students and, and now, especially in music, I think students mm-hmm. are, very aware of that 
And mm-hmm. so whenever we, I, we talk about, uh, whenever I advise my students, um, they're very conscious, very conscious about, about their education and, mm-hmm. and specifically what can, um, what, what will this class or what will this kind of thing or this activity or you fill in the blank, right? Mm-hmm. What, what, what yeah. will this, what will, first of all, is it worth it? <laughs> and yeah. is it, and is it, uh, and how will it help me achieve my goals? And I certainly did not think like that when I was a student for sure. And perhaps I should have mm-hmm. maybe thought about it a little bit more, I, you know, but on the flip side, I, I think my role for, for, for students like these is to, is to, uh, also help them see uh, the longer game too, because sometimes mm-hmm. if you, you know, if you look too short sighted, that's not good either. So I, I, I think I, I, that's what I have been noticing a lot about students, um, these days, they're, they're very, uh, con- conscious about, about their education and, uh, and mm-hmm. what, what it can do. Um, and I also noticed that they, they just, they, they're involved in so many different things that are just not uh, pertaining to their, to their, um, to their degree or to their career. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's, I I think that's kind of the, um, the trend and the the thing and the thing that just has to be these days. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I, I, it's, it's just really interesting to see where, um, where this will take us, especially in another three to five years, 10 years, where oftentimes we are challenged as faculty members to, to always do that exercise, right? Yeah. Rethink that. <laughs> reimagine, rethink, rebrand, yeah. right? all, all these, all these words. And, uh, and it's challenging. It's mm-hmm. tough. It's sometimes no one wants to have the conversation sometimes, but, uh, but I, I, I think it's necessary. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a challenging time indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was wondering, and I don't know, Mike, if you have more, questions on this i'd love to start delving into some russian music oh absolutely so okay. just a real quick just want to recap that we're talking to uh, uh dr frank huang um from uh, uh miami university and 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 yeah we, we've been talking a lot about the um kind of the um the teaching aspect the mentoring aspect of of teaching young kids but but one of his passions i know is russian music and spe- specifically uh nikolai medner and and talk to us a little bit about that uh journey yeah may- maybe also who he is because I, yeah. I think a lot of people or li- listeners don't know this composer sure yes uh nikolai medner um as, as you mentioned he um was a russian romantic composer uh born towards the tail end of the 19th century and, and lived really all the way to the 40s and 50s. Um, and he was a contemporary and actually really, really good friend of Sergei Rachmaninoff. Um, and he lived around the same time as all the other Russian greats, Sergei Prokofiev, um, Skriabin, although they had different path, pathways, but they lived around the same time. And, and his compositional output um, was just as significant as these composers. And um, although he did write um, music other than so, solo piano music, I mean, he did write some chamber music. He wrote a beautiful mm-hmm. piano quintet. He wrote, mm-hmm. he wrote a, um, a lot sonatas. of- Yes, a few violin sonatas, um, some piano duos, and he wrote, 
really some beautiful, I have, I had a friend who just recently released, um, a bunch of, um, songs mm -hmm. and, um, my goodness, the piano part is fiendishly <laughs> difficult. I have to say, well, so is the um, singing part, by the way, his, yes, his, his vocal yeah. music is almost unsingable. It's yes. Yes. And it's, it's gorgeous. And he wrote, um, piano concerti. Um, so he, he wrote a lot and un unfortunately he, he just, he's not, um, maybe in some piano circles, he, he is, um, he's not considered technically cutting edge. Um, you, you know, he's more a little bit well-known, but I would say to the general public, um, he, a number of reasons, which which I can get into later, if you want. Um, but there's just a number of reasons why he just he just did not achieve that kind of international fame, like uh, his yeah. Russian compatriot Sergei Rachmaninoff. And mm -hmm. uh, but one thing, it's, it's just hard to follow the footsteps of Rachmaninoff. It, it really is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, you was... know what? <laughs> you know what? Though I think he's a better melody writer. I mean, that's just me. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that you say that because he, you know, he, he is a, he is a tune. He, he does have tuneful melodies. And I, I will say though, that it's not always, it doesn't have that kind of instant appeal compared to Rachmaninoff. Like if you think mm -hmm. of his cello sonata or his, or his pian second piano concerto, it, those are more instant blockbuster hits. Right. And, mm -hmm. uh, um, and Metner, in general, doesn't have that kind of like, oh, I hear it once and I keep wanting to hear it again. Now, mm -hmm. for me, I'm biased and I, I'm like, yes, there are absolutely some pieces that are like that. But I, I, I can I can understand that there are some pieces that that, you know, it's like it's like wine. It just has to age and, and it's like acquired. It's an acquired taste. And then sometimes yeah. they're just maybe not as easily. Yeah, they're not yes. as easily accessible. Sometimes the the melodies right. might be flowing out and a little, little bit more uh, out there than we would predict or expect, and so it's harder to remember. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exa exactly. So, um, but you know, I I I wrote this on my liner notes for my first CD, um, which was released um, in April. Um, but I my my first experience with Metner ever was when I. Um, when I was at Juilliard as a student and I heard a classmate perform it in mm -hmm. one of our um, piano forums, which was kind of open to the public. And he played um, his uh, tragic sonata, Opus 39. And it's, um, if you don't know it, it's such a powerful and, and dramatic work. And it, I, I just remember having just kind of a visceral reaction to it. And I was just like, oh my goodness. Who is this composer? I, I, I mm -hmm. don't know. I, I never heard of that name. And so I, I kind of started to do a dive into it. And it, it wasn't until like many years later, I, I decided I want to do a recording project, but I don't want to do a project that like, that there are like a million <laughs> hits on YouTube. <laughs> and so, yeah. because, because I, I mean, and while I do appreciate Rahmanov, I just wanted to do something that was maybe that just kind of, bring you know bring uh, just kind of unearth these kind of rare yeah that, that it's a great way to introduce people to yeah. this music absolutely yeah. and there aren't like you say there aren't many recordings out there i think maybe of the sonatas there are only three or four complete complete sets and I, actually my my former teacher at university of montreal is i think coming out with his last volume of i think it's about four volumes or five for the sonatas 
the Sonata is doing the entire uh, output. So I think there are only <laughs> yeah. four pianists that have released all the Sonatas, Tozer, you know, Hamlin, uh, a couple. Hamlin, yeah. yeah so I'm Yeah, gonna... and then your teacher. Um, yes, I um, – yeah, I, I, and I think – I don't th- – I, if I'm not mistaken, I believe no one has recorded the complete solo piano works. Um, although the, right. the two the two that are closest um, is Tozer and the late um, Hamish Milne, um, who who was a oh that's um, right a British pianist, yeah, who uh, taught at the um, Royal Conservatory of Music and recently passed. And I I I was so sad to um, because I I was in London to play some Metner um, a few years back and. I reached out to him to, to, I just wanted to meet him and maybe play for him and, and everything, but he was already ill at that time. And, 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 uh-huh. and actually, and then, yeah, and then he, he passed just shortly after it, but I really liked his recordings. And in fact, I, 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 I've heard from Russians that he, that his performances of, of Medner were quote unquote authentically Russian. So, <laughs> so that's got to say a lot. <laughs> that's Tragic, a lot yeah. Truly <laughs> tragically hopeful in that great Russian tradition. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that I, I, I've had a long, um, yeah, just kind of my exposure to Medner was, was a, a while ago, but, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that I, I took this journey and it's, it's a big one, um, indeed, but, uh, so, so we'll, for, we'll see how it goes. So for, for people who maybe aren't um, super aware of him, what would be some good – I mean, I love like Nightwind. I mean, yeah. this is so good. What, what are some good jumping off points for some people who want to get introduced to his music? Yeah. Um, so uh, as I mentioned, Tragic Sonata is uh, – in terms of just listening, I would say the Tragic Sonata is – is one of the um, from from his Opus Thirty Nine Forgotten Melodies, which is a cycle of a set of um, relatively short pieces. Although I would say the Tragic Sonata is the is by far the longest one that set that go that runs um, at least 10, 10 to thirteen minutes or so. Um, but uh, I, I would start with that um, in terms of pieces to learn. Um, Metner wrote a bunch of. Uh, uh, fairy tales of, for the young. So it's, I would say it's not like in terms of difficulty level, it's not comparable to like Schumann's album for the young, which mm-hmm. were definitely uh, much uh, easier pieces. Um, the the Met- Metner's version, I would say, is more on the late intermediate to early advanced so it still is pushing boundaries but uh so for those that want to you know assign metner um and you want to do some something different that that's a great spot um the fairy tales are are great pieces because they are short character pieces that kind of evoke the spirit of russian folklore um sometimes metner is rather explicit about what the subject is about sometimes Mm -hmm. He just said, basically, he's, he's, he does, he leaves it blank. So it's, and the way I hear it is, or the way I understand it, it's, it's basically him saying, use your own imagination. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so I, I, that's where I would start. Um, uh, th- there, there's a lot of pieces like Nightwind. 
I, I'm surprised that you mentioned it because that's that's yeah. uh, that's an enormous work, and I have to think yeah. about when I'm going to record that because that's uh, well, it's, so <laughs> it's so unusual. And you're right; it is it's unbelievable. But I, I just I like it. I think it's such a great. It's such an interesting piece with the the, the little introductions in between the movements, and yeah. I, it's really cool. So that's yeah. a through piece. That's a one large kind of movement, if you will, split up, but you play it continuously. And it's, I, I is about 25, 30 minutes or something or 35 yeah, minutes. Longer. At least. Yeah. At, at least yeah, it's, maybe. it's, it's, it's gargantuan. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, yeah, but yeah, he seems to like to do the same as the tragic Sonata. It's, it's a Sonata in one, it's in Sonata in one movement. And, uh, but you hear a lot of themes that are recurring and also you even hear themes that are are uh, as I mentioned that that's that that piece is part of a set of of um, pieces f um, called forgotten forgotten tunes or uh, forgotten yeah forgotten tunes or forgotten melodies I should, I should say yeah and um, and he kind of brings back tunes from from the pieces in that set so it yeah. seems like Metner likes to do that kind of thing it, it, he's really embracing that romantic spirit even though yeah. he lived well into the 20th century and, well, and yeah yeah i wanted to ask you about that because it, it's like late, <clears throat> specifically russian romanticism but but th that late romantic period where where you know it seems like uh literally the world is kind of split into two where you have like this like this atonal movement going on it's just out yeah. there and totally subversive of everything yes you know uh, musical almost and then and then you have this late like, this late romanticism of, of rachmaninoff and metner and, and these guys that 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 you know you can you can you can almost call it late beethoven it's so romantic it's just so you have this really strange diverse um like line in the sand kind of thing so talk to me a little bit about that that time period, Russian late romanticism and how Metner kind of fits into that. That's kind of a big question, but I'm curious about it. Yeah, um, yeah as you mentioned, around the time Metner was composing, the, the, there, you know, there was the creation and, and, and shall we say, avant-garde music started to become more and more trendy. Um, you know, it, it began with Stravinsky, he shocked the world with Rite of Spring, the famous riots mm -hmm. and uh and it, which it, now when i think about it is insane because mm -hmm. i'm like what's wrong with that piece it's a great yeah. word. <laughs> right 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 but they weren't ready for it even the same with debussy's prelude to the afternoon of the fawn i i think there were i can't remember who said it but i i, I think there was a famous musician a composer that said oh my god the the end of the mu the end of the musical world is is here us, they, yeah. they couldn't they couldn't they just could not <laughs> the musical were, apocalypse is upon us yeah they weren't ready for that right and then later we get schoenberg and then we get schockhausen boulez and all that stuff and then and then at the same time you have metner and, and rachmanov writing rather um rather conservator conservatively right and yeah. and and that was I'm not sure if that was the knock on Rachmaninoff, but that certainly was the knock on Metner. And that, that was kind of one of the criticisms is that, you know, he was, he was writing quote unquote backwards music for its time. And, yeah. and, and so I, you know, and, and, and we have all this late, 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 as you said, late romanticism that is just in a, in a period of, of transition and 
And I think with Mentner, I think one of the reasons why it just didn't work for him and it worked for Rachmaninoff, as I mentioned earlier, Mentner, he was kind of overshadowed by Rachmaninoff, but Rachmaninoff, he didn't just write his own music and he didn't just play his own music, but he played other composers, right? Uh, he had legendary recordings of of Chopin Sonata or the mm -hmm. Schumann Carnival, Schumann, like yeah. one of my favorite yeah. recordings, and and, and 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 those are just a few to mention. Uh, but Metner wasn't really interested in performing music other than his, and that's kind of a prop. That was a problem, and he he actually really had really strong thoughts about this. He just he he thought you know his he he just he just viewed composing as a as a kind of a higher calling if you will and he he he's he was like i'm composing i'm creating music so i am just going to play my own music he he really didn't like to play other music maybe he did play i think he did like beethoven actually he did play some beethoven but um but his refusal to to, to not play other composers i i felt like put a kind of a damper on his on his career and he he didn't like to um he didn't like to market. He didn't like to, you know, promote himself or market again yeah. because he was thinking, "I'm just the composer. That's that's my yeah. job." A more and humble I, calling, yeah. Exactly, and so <laughs> where that was not Rachmaninoff. No, that was not Rachmaninoff. And, and actually, that's kind of the in his bi in, in Metner's biography. He uh, he he kind of I, I read it was it's fascinating. You know, Metner really respected Rachmaninoff and Metter loved to want to talk about music and composing and everything. And, and Rachmaninoff didn't really, I mean, by the way, Rachmaninoff really respected Metter. He, he called Metter mm -hmm. the, the greatest living composer of his time. So it wasn't, so Met, so Rachmaninoff respected Metter, but Rachmaninoff didn't really want to talk about this stuff. And it's probably because Rachmaninoff was, he was just, he was so busy with and, and with all the tours and composing everything, it, it was tiring. And I think he probably didn't want to, but Metner really, really wanted to talk about the nuts and bolts, you know, want to talk shop just and Rachmaninoff didn't want to. And, and that would always disappoint Metner. And also Metner, there was a lot of jealousy, you know, Metner wished he had the kind of career, but the Metner thought that Rachmaninoff was probably a sellout. And so it was just, you know, and, and it, it, it's just an interesting dynamic because Metner, Metner really looked up to Rachmaninoff and, and, it, and the feeling was absolutely mutual, but, uh, but there was some sense of jealousy. And I think jealousy also kind of prevented him from having career and, and Rachmaninoff really helped. He arranged the, a tour for him in the U.S. and it and just for for many reasons, it, you know, it could just, his career could just never take off completely. Yeah, well, he didn't really <clears throat> come. To, you know, Rachmaninoff moved to the West and moved to the yeah. U.S. and and just had a burgeoning career here and and really was a a performer and a showman. And and I'll I'll say I think he was a very humble one. Of course, he had he did what he had to do to promote himself, but I think others really helped and promoted him and, and brought him. Um, yeah. I think Saul Hurok might've been one of the early ones, but he, uh, he was just such a magnanimous performer and, and really got out there. And we know him in the West because of that. And I think another person that kind of got left behind in a way, although he's a little bit more, uh, a little crazier um, and in his own world was Scriabin and yep. both Scriabin and Metner were 
sort of left in Russia, similar time period, and yeah. uh, just didn't get as well known here in the West. Scriabin is more well known now, certainly than Metner, but Metner's started starting, I think, to become more known. But it's it's been a slow train, uh, and and also the recording possibilities. You know, Rachmaninoff performed and recorded a lot, including all his concerti, and Metner didn't have those options until I think relatively late. And I, I wonder if you can talk about yeah. that that connection with how how that came to be, and then maybe his connection with India uh, and the support that yes. he received. Exactly. Yeah, it, it, you're you're absolutely right. I I forget the the name of of, of that um, Mysore, the uh, Maharaja. That's right. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I it just kind of uh, s slipped my mind. I. Haven't finished all my coffee yet, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, yes, absolutely, and and that that to me, and, and unfortunately, that that happened towards the end of his life, and mm -hmm. uh, towards the tail end, and uh, uh, and I I definitely think that was. Uh, a well, I'm sorry, point. I'm not I'm not familiar with this story. What, oh yeah, let's, what can you tell the story how this happened? Uh, sure. Uh, that I talking about how he how he met. How he met this person? I I don't recall exactly how he met this person, but or, I, I know. I mean, like how he was supported. Um, I, I think the Maharaja of Mysore, which is a city or a province in India, heard him in India. and loved yes. him somehow, and then like became his patron, which wasn't a, a thing that was done much in that era. That's kind of more the Tchaikovsky era. Yes. But anyway, he he kind of loved his music and started to support him, and, and didn't he? pay to have his recordings, uh, recordings. done yeah. yes exactly so. and um i i believe i can't remember if it was i don't think it was it was definitely not the complete output but, no, but he no. recorded a lot of stuff uh, uh -huh. and um and a lot of these um are readily available you can kind of scour the scour youtube and, and you can find um you know he recorded some of uh, you know of fairy tales and and other short pieces and, and also some 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 of the larger scale works mm -hmm. and and that was kind of uh um a a a source to to really um to, to really help promote his music because before then <clears throat> excuse me before then he was living in relative poverty he mm -hmm. he, he bounced around here and there um, but he, he, he had a, he had a, he, he lived in a house just outside of London. And I actually had a chance to visit it, visit when I was there and, mm -hmm. and it's very unassuming. And, and so is his grave too. It's, it's totally unassuming. And, um, and, uh, it's, it's just interesting to, 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 to compare his, to compare his life and his lifestyle and his career trajectory compared mm -hmm. to Rachmaninoff where <laughs> Rachmaninoff if you go to Hollywood and, and, you know his house is there and then and then his and then his grave in outside New York <laughs> it's just yeah. it's just you, there's no comparison <laughs> so yeah yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah that's and, amazing well in that whole I, I can't imagine being a Russian living there in that time um you know that's such a such a wild, crazy time in, in that in the history of that country, and, and trying to make decisions of whether to stay, whether to go, where to go to, who's gonna you know take care of you. 
what does this mean for the arts? I mean, there, there, there's so many political implications of what was going on in that time period that I can't imagine trying to negotiate that. It would have been very, very difficult. Yeah, no, absolutely. With, with all that turmoil that was happening around that time, it's uh, – anyways, I, that, mm-hmm. I, I can't even imagine. It's uh, not just the professional opportunities, but just personally your life. Like what, yeah. what are you going to – what are you going to do? These are like life altering decisions. And, and it's interesting to see the music that was composed. Like if you compare Shostakovich and Prokofiev, I mean, those are the, mm-hmm. the best examples you can think of where, where Prokofiev was able to get out and Shostakovich not so much. And, and it's, it's just fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just the opportunities that they were given or, or not given. But uh, luckily what, now what, we've we've seen. Oh, so I was going to ask too about finding scores because I think that's it's easier now, and and I think uh, Dover has published. Although yeah. Dover is gone now, but but the complete sonatas. But I remember uh, when my teacher was was uh, looking through some things. Some of the scores were not so easy and re- readily available. They were still stuck in Russia. Some of the scores uh, were only in India uh, or had yeah. certain handwritten notes on them from Metner and it's just very hard to get all the source material whereas with Rahmanov I feel it's just ubiquitous everybody has access <laughs> to that so what, what yeah. is you know is, is that just the the nature of or, or a um an effect of of this life that we've been talking about I I think so I I think so and um I I, I personally I haven't yet run into too many problems I, I have, you know, but, uh, but it, it doesn't surprise me. I think with any time you're, you're trying to, um, perform music of composers that have fallen through the cracks, um, through a variety of reasons. Like right now, I, I actually, I just last weekend, I just, I, I was playing a concert, um, in Seattle on September 11th, actually of, of all days. Oh, wow. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and so I opened the program with a pretty obscure work by Florence Price. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, it was really, really hard to find this work. And, and, and the reason why I chose to open that, because uh, it, it was a piece that was resembling and symbolizing freedom. And I thought, oh, that, that would be a, yeah. that'd be perfect to play on on that day and mm-hmm. uh, but it, it was a pain to find to yeah. find that score um and uh, and so it's it's but i i like i like the challenge i i, I it, you're, it's like you're digging for treasure in a way. Mm-hmm, right <laughs> yeah. you know, so that's awesome what, um back back to magner as far as as um as a pianist um it's also interesting because you can hear obviously he's got the big you know you know, not quite as bombastic as Rachmaninoff, but he's definitely got the you got moments of, of of bigness. But but you, I also hear a lot of like Debussy influences, even some you know Bach with some of his the way he some of his counterpoint runs and, and things like that. But he but he was uh, you know um, outside of being a composer, his main instrument was piano. Right. So as a pianist and performing, talk about some of the. Um, maybe idiosyncrasies, challenges, um, you know, you know, what are, what are things that, how do you approach his music as a, from a pianist standpoint? Yeah. I, um, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned Bach because I definitely, 
hear and see a lot of Bach um, Bach influence, especially with the counterpoint. Oh my gosh, all of the all mm -hmm. some some of the pieces that just have a high um, index of just con contrapuntal writing. You hear these, you hear like all these. You, you might hear like the melody in, in a, embedded in a voice, and then you hear like another canon in the lower voice and another canon here, and then they're all like they interweave within each other, and then he stacks them, and then there, and then you got maybe some kind of ethereal atmospheric effect in the upper register that's going and then it's just there's a lot going on and there i'm just is. like i'm like how mm -hmm. the heck does he fit all of that right and, mm -hmm. and i'm like and you're making my job as a performer difficult because i have to bring all that out <laughs> and, and it's it's a challenge so i definitely see a lot of bach influence um i definitely mm -hmm. see a lot of beethoven influence as well with just how he how he develops ideas and he takes maybe like certain germs and like motivic cells right and, and those become the the inspiration and basis of new themes and 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 and, and I, I will say though that you know there were stories of uh, of the composers that Metner would perform Beethoven was was one of them actually so so I was like oh okay I, that that kind of that that kind of I can see that that kind of makes sense but yeah, he, his melody, I, we were talking about this before, Mike, you know, his melodies, I think are, they are tuneful. They, they just, I don't know how to describe it. They're, they're not, they're, they're not as, uh, as catchy, if you will, compared to Rachmaninoff, but, but he writes some absolutely beautiful melodies and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and they are, and, I find that his 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 writing is often rather ethereal, and he mm -hmm. um, and his and in his music he's incredibly descriptive of what what kind of image or or mood that he's trying to convey. Yeah, that's a great mm -hmm. way. Like as I was listening to, to some stuff last night, just kind of refreshing some things in my mind. I was it was striking me how. Um, direct he was um he, he was not like um like you didn't have to guess about what he was trying to get at it was just it was there and it was put in this perfect setting like it was really well crafted yeah yeah i i i i i, I think so and um i and yeah and also in his pianistic writing gosh it's hard for me to to sum it up i mean i i I think there's elements of the awkwardness of um, of Brahms in there. Mm -hmm. I think there, uh, with in terms of just how all the different textures and parts weave and run into each other, I of course see Bachman, and then you can't help but not to think about Rachmaninoff as well, how they just blend mm -hmm. together, um, and then and then some of the some of the melodies and just and how he how he uh, writes with the left hand in terms of supporting the, the right hand melody I can't help but to think of Chopin mm -hmm. um, and there's yeah. definitely harmonically like there's a lot of Scriabin influence um, and and then of course when you think of the fairy tales and you think of all of the 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 kind of the Russian folklore and and also just the kind of the return to modality can't help but to think of all of the 
the you know the the Russian Russian composers like Mussorgsky and 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 Korsakovsky Korsakov and, and and all that stuff. So it it's hard for me to just pinpoint like in one simple sentence what does Metner sound like. But that's my best way of describing his music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. An amalgamation of all the greats. Yeah. I, I think so. I, I, I think so. And uh, he really does he, draw on a lot. And he was a fantastic pianist. And so some of the passage work, I've only played one sonata, Remini uh, Cenza, which I oh, think is one of the more accessible ones. It's um, beautiful work. Yeah. And, and it's just some places like, oh, this just fits perfectly. And other places like, boy, I got to figure this thing out. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, right now I, um, so I'm going to record the second, uh, volume of, you know, of his solo, of his complete solo stuff. And on that, I'm, I'm on that CD there, there's two CD, there's two sonatas that I'm doing, but I, I just recently performed, uh, at least, you know, Opus 22, the G minor. Yeah, that's great. That's a tough sonata. I mean, yeah. not, not just technically, of course, but yeah. musically to hold that together. And uh, I, I recently stumbled across a um, Stephen Huff recording, and and oh, oh my goodness, <laughs> was, uh, I didn't know he recorded that. So that was. I uh, think I, I'm I, used. Doesn't Gillels have a recording? Yes, of that? yes, yeah. Gillels. Uh, I think Horowitz. I read that Horowitz. Performed Formed it, but there's not. I don't think there's a recording of it. I I, I could be mistaken, so I I, I I'm not a hundred percent on that one. But but Stephen Huff, okay. yes, he. I think he. This was a recorded, a live recorded performance from the '80s or so. So this is quite some time ago, but uh, it was really really convincing. And um, it, it's it's it, it's a, it's a sonata. It's a it's a one it's a one movement sonata, and it's just. Um, has everything it has like you have the choral hymn in the middle it's almost very religious sounding in a way and then you have drama and all of these tempestuous turbulent um melodies and and, and gestures that they go from the beginning to the end um, and so it it, it was it was a, it was fun but that that, that was kind of what has kept me occupied in terms of uh that that was like the last work that i needed to to get you know before recording um this december but the, the that was that was my spring slash summer project um over this over this year and it was it was it was massive <laughs> wow so just so, to give listeners oh go ahead mike go ahead Sorry. no no go, go ahead go ahead well i was gonna say and this might be what you're thinking too to give listeners an idea of the scope of the project and i don't know if we can learn a little bit about you know where you might be recording or where you recorded the last one if, if you can't share the upcoming information but sure, you know, yeah. just how you go about doing that stuff yeah yeah so um as as mike said earlier this is a project of nine cds of the complete solo piano works and uh, i just released um the first volume in april um last year and it was oh no i'm mistaken two years ago now maybe time yeah. flies <laughs> time flies <laughs> uh but yeah two years ago and it, it it does feel like almost just this last year but no two years ago and um and so i recorded the first volume um at miami university in our recital hall um and then i used um uh, I, I used my engineer was a colleague of mine at Miami University who who engineered and and edited the, the entire CD, and then so a, after that um, 
I, I, we, I decided also to, to kind of change things up. And so for my second volume, um, I don't know if you are familiar with this person, Elias, but um, I, are you are you familiar with the Blue Griffin? Uh, I've heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, anyways, the the owner of that label and the owner, founder, and the engineer extraordinaire of that label is um, his name is Sergey Kvitko, and he's based in East Lansing, Michigan. And okay. so, I I'm I'm going to be heading up there um in this late late december um after after school's finished and then um and, and then we'll we'll record the second volume so it's he's a great pianist great um great editor and a uh, great engineer and so um so we'll be doing that and uh so so that and for that volume I, i'm going to record um two sonatas um the opus 22 which is like i said a, a movement a, a sonata in a single movement and then uh, another sonata called Triad Sonatas, and it's in, it's in, it's a beautiful work. Um, it's it's in set in three movements, almost independent of each other. In fact, I'm convinced you could play each movement individually as standalone pieces, and it would work just fine. And and then I'm performing a bunch of assorted fairy tales, or recording a whole bunch of fairy tales that uh, um, to kind of kind of close out the album so I, I i'm i'm really really excited about this and uh and uh it, it will be it's just excited to kind of move things along and to just kind of put to, to put it out there how, how did you decide how to organize it and, and what you were going to be putting on on the, the last album and this coming upcoming album yeah i you know i i i want to treat it I don't want to. I, 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 when I thought about it, I was like, I don't want to do it chronologically because I don't know if that makes a lot of sense. But I wanted to, to treat it like a, a recital program. So I wanted mm. to kind of balance it out with the with the large works with the small works, right? Yeah. With the sonatas versus the smaller character pieces. Maybe also um, just the mood of the pieces, the, the the and the accessibility of the pieces. Um, and like, I don't want to do all the sonatas on one, you know, <laughs> and like, and like, for example, when I eventually do record the Nightwind Sonata, um, I need to think about how am I going to, cause that's, that's heavy listening. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, yeah. that's tough. That, <laughs> that's that's tough for any, me. yeah, that's, yeah, that's very tough for any listener. So I want to kind of, uh, balance it, pair it with something that's lighter, yeah. just like you would if you were to curate a, a menu for your diners, right? So you just want to have the right kind of uh, pairing and tasting and, and everything. So, right. and that's how I see myself. It's just kind of, just kind of curating all these a la carte items into a, into a, into a, into a prefix menu, if you will. <laughs> I love that. That's a great analogy. That's Do you have it all planned out yet, or you're still working on some of the later um, plans? I, I do, but it's okay. liquid. It's very okay. liquid. I, I, mm -hmm. I, I, I'm like constantly changing. So mm -hmm. uh, I think the next volume I want to, the third volume, I, I, I might change my mind, but so mm -hmm. as of today, I think I'm going to record the, 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 as I mentioned, the album for the young, those fairy tale pieces, um, 
because I think they, they are they're great pedagogical pieces and mm-hmm. um, and they're and they're they're relatively short. So if I were, if I were to do that, then maybe maybe a massive sonata, maybe not Nightwind, yeah. not yet. But uh, <laughs> and, and are you looking at well, maybe looking once, forward to that. Yeah. once every other year releasing an album? Is that sort of the the goal timeline? Because you want to pr- probably perform all of these in concert first. Yes, yes, yeah. That that's the plan. I I I, I want to kind of that, that's kind of the challenge. I want yeah. to push these out you know, sooner than later, but also it takes time to, yeah. to not just, of course, learn the notes, but to really have to live with them. Uh, yeah. Yes, exactly. And, and, and that's kind of the, the, the dilemma that I, that I, that I face that any art, that any musician faces, right? Like, yeah. when should I put my stuff out? Yeah. <laughs> when should I, like, uh, when, is it ready? when is it ready? When, yeah. like, Oh, I, Oh, like oh, I don't know if this if, if my playing is good enough yet. Should I put it out on YouTube? Should I put it out on Facebook and Instagram? That's like the yeah. the, the the burning question that we always right. <laughs> face, and and there comes to a point where you just be like, well, it's got to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's so that's the, yeah, so that's tricky. That's the plan, but I I I think realistically. If I can do it every two or two and a half years, maybe no more than that, really. Uh, I mean, that's, that's still a twenty-year project when people when you think about it to release right. all those albums. But I don't big... know if people realize the delayed gratification in the music world, but you know, you've been playing for umpteen years since you were a, a young child, and now you're <clears throat> you're putting on. You have this idea of a twenty-year project to work towards. It's phenomenal. It's remarkable. Thank you. Yes, I, I hope it won't take twenty years, <laughs> but, yeah, but, but it could. But it could, and it, and it yeah. might. Yeah. And and uh, but yes, it's it's. I I just kind of want to. I, I just figured, you know, what 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 do I want to do? Um, you know, I I have ideas what I want to do as a to to be as a teacher. What I, what kind of uh, things that I can pass on for, you know, for future students. And then, and so I also asked myself that same question for, uh, as a performer mm-hmm. and creative activity. And, and so this is just kind of one of my things I have in the fire. I have, um, other things that I, that I'm, the other plates that I'm spinning, but, uh, but this is right. like my, my biggest thing that I, you know, been focusing on. And it's, it's a thing I, I want to look back later down, later down the road and be like, Oh yeah. Yeah. kind of proud of what I was able to do. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah and I, where, I don't know people, um, oh, where, go ahead, Mike. I keep going in. I was just going to ask where, where people can, can find your, uh, yeah. you know, the, the stuff that you're doing, how, if they want to find out more about what you are doing currently and working on, um, you know, what, what's the best way for people to, to, to find your music and, and find what you're up to? Yeah. Thanks. Uh, people can visit my website, um, www.frankhuangpiano.com. And then, and then they, um, then I have like all like all my stuff on there. I have my um, my social media accounts there, so they can you know Perfect. look there. And then there I have some um, of uh, videos and uh, and SoundCloud stuff on there too. Um, and then if if there if people are interested in purchasing CDs, I have information on how to do so also on my website as well. So um, yeah, I I, um, I I I invite you know. It, interested people to, to check it out it's I, I will say i always give a disclaimer that it, it's not always it's not like instant gratification it takes um sometimes repeated listenings to appreciate metner um although some might be like i don't know what you're talking about i loved it 
right away from the <laughs> beginning. And, and I'm like, great, that's, I, I, I'm pleased to hear that. And there's some that, that just, it might take three, that's four, five, one. six list of names and be like, okay. Well, he, you know? He's, he's <laughs> so interesting because he's not going to, he, he's not going to be that total, um, like out there, like Schoenberg or something. Like he's not going to be that. And no. he's, and he's not going to be that, as you say, the, the catchy, um, you know, tunis of, of like this second piano concerto of Rachmaninoff. It's not going to be that, but it's got this like really beautiful. And, and again, I come back to the word craft. I think he's, he is a, a great craftsman when it comes to specifically piano works. I mean, he, he's so good. It, it, it's really beautiful stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny that you've mentioned that word craft because he took his craft very seriously. Like, uh, like, like I mentioned before, like he, like serious, like like it was a higher calling, like a like almost like a sacrosanct duty, if you will, and and he and he he wrote about all of this in his he wrote this book called The Muse and the Fashion, and mm. he talks about all of this, the very stuff that you just mentioned, Mike. Um, so it's just interesting that you just mentioned that because that's what I was thinking when when, when you talked about that, and he he lays out like his artistic vision, if you will in this book and I, I, it's just a fascinating read and i just uh i you know he he just gives you the the insight as to how seriously he he viewed performing there, there's a story in there where like he um I, I forget the um the name of the orchestra or the conductor but it was it was it was some orchestra in in, in germany and he was playing beethoven fourth and and he was rehearsing with the conductor and I mean, anytime you get an opportunity to perform Beethoven Fourth, you yeah. know, that's you take just it. you take it <laughs> because that's like like one of my like bucket list concertos, yeah. and I would love to learn and play with an orchestra, right? A good orchestra, right? yeah. It has to be a, anyways. Otherwise, you just feel unsatisfied. Um, but but anyways, so the or, the conductor he he um, he did not want to do what Metner wanted. In fact, he was like. Metner felt he had the right of way, if you will, like, you know, because he's a guest soloist. He gets to determine, you know, like what tempo you want to do and things of that sort. The conductor was like, he's like, I conduct, you play. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Metner was just, I, because, you know, I don't know, if it was me, I would just been like, Oh, okay, fine. You know, I'll, I'll just fine. You know, I, I like I, I wouldn't right. be pleased, but I, I, you know, but Metner, he took that seriously. He was like, he, he, he treated performance and you know, creating music, performing music, so seriously. Shall we? The best way I could say it diplomatically is he wasn't very diplomatic. Right. <laughs> he, right. He, <laughs> he, 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 he just stormed out. He, he slammed the piano and was just like. Uh, he, he, he was absolutely furious. Wow. Like, yeah, but that's how he took his craft so seriously. That, that's why I'm I can see why story. he thought Rachmaninoff was a sellout now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and but but he really respected Rachmaninoff. That, that's right, the, right, right. Yeah, that's the that's the interesting thing. But he, I, I I just really believe that you know he really admired Rachmaninoff, and I think he he was just frustrated that yeah for sure. Like, he, 
you know the you know the truth. You can't have it both ways. But I felt like he was in between in there. Like he wanted to write his way. He wanted his career in a certain way. He wanted to. He want. He wanted it on his own terms. But yeah. But uh, but then he saw the kind of recognition that Rachmanov was getting, and uh, and so he was just kind of in no man's land. And no, it, it does yeah. sound like that green monster bit him a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, Rachmanov was was pan too and i think they were both <clears throat> considered pastiche composers it's like yeah we have all this schoenberg and whatever second viennese school and here you guys are writing in the style of wagner or late chopin yeah. and uh you know you're going backwards but you know it it came eventually they were recognized as first-rate composers both of them um yes. but it took it, i think it took a while for people to come around and respect them it takes time right it takes time mm -hmm. just like people can eventually came around with the with Stravinsky's Rite of Spring sure. and, and, and all yeah. of that and it but it just it just takes time so um and so yeah I I, I just uh so hopefully hopefully this project will do just that you know just kind of you know provide some much needed and deserved um recognition and just appreciation for a composer that um just kind of has fallen by the wayside yeah um do you have anything else, Elias? I have kind of no, one this more is question. Great. I have yeah, it. go um, ahead. I I wanted to ask just to kind of finish up. What what have you learned about yourself in in taking on learn you know working through you know Metner, but but your 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 journey with other composers too. What have you learned as an artist, as a pianist? Um, you know, what are some some of your personal takeaways um, in in playing these this music that that maybe you can share with us. Yeah. Um, no, thanks for asking that. I, I, I would say that, I, you know, just studying the, you know, the struggles that Metner went through personally, professionally, everything that, you know, and I say this all the time to my students, you know, composers were, were humans. <laughs> they had their own life. They, they had their own struggles. They, um, you know, uh, they just learning the life of Mozart and, and and comparing his his life versus Haydn and Beethoven and and and, and when you see their economic motivation right and uh, politically all of these things and what what makes them tick yeah. and and so I, I I just you learn a lot about the human spirit you learn a lot about uh, that music really, did not exist in a vacuum, right? It, it, it was inspired, influenced by, historically, it's been influenced by a variety of things, whether it's culturally, philosophically, economically, technological, you know, and so I, I, I mean, I, I knew this before, but I think just the studying, just kind of doing deeper dives into composers, and even like just with like Florence Price that I mentioned to you earlier, you know, her life story is fascinating, fascinating, and uh, just kind of um, amazing at how she was able to accomplish a lot um, despite all of the kind of the hurdles that she had to deal with in terms of sexism and racism, and so I, I just. I, I enjoy um, learning about this and 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 uh, just see how they developed their craft, how they cultivated their craft, and and how how they what made them tick. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I, I'm just I, I'm just that I'm, I'm 
I'm kind of analytical in that sense. So I just, I, I like that kind of stuff. And it, it, it has, I've learned a lot. And so I, I try to kind of share that with students and, uh, and, uh, and it, it kind of helps us understand the, the why a little bit better sometimes. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. That's a good Wonderful. answer. Well, we, again, we, uh, we've been talking to uh, Dr. Frank Huang uh, with Dr. Elias Axel Pedersen, and I'm the lowly Mr. Mike Levitt. So I am very pleased and happy to have you guys on. Thanks, thanks again, Frank, for, for joining us on And If Love Remains. I hope we'll, we'll have you on again soon. That'll be fun. Thanks so much. Yes, I, I, I'd love to. I, I had such a blast, and it was great to just um, to talk about what we do. Um, oftentimes, you know, like with, with just the kind of the daily run of everything that we have to do uh, is sometimes is what the, it just kind of gets lost in these kind of conversations, and um, it, it, it was a lot of fun. So really, I, I appreciate both of you um, for inviting me on, on your podcast, and, uh, and hope to do it again someday. You are listening to End of Love Remain.